0: Then John's disciples told him about all these things. So John summoned two of his disciples and sent them to the Lord, asking, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? When the men reached him, they said, John the Baptist sent us to ask you, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? At that time, Jesus healed many people of diseases afflictions and evil spirits and he granted sight to many blind people he replied to them
1: go and report to john what you have seen and heard the blind receive their sight the lame walk those with leprosy are cleansed the deaf hear the dead are raised and the poor are told the good news and blessed is the one who isn't offended by me
0: After John's messengers left, he began to speak to the crowds about John.
1: What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swaying in the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothes? See, those who are splendidly dressed and live in luxury are in royal palaces. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written. See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, no one is greater than John. But the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he.
0: And when all the people, including the tax collectors, heard this, they acknowledged God's way of righteousness because they had been baptized with John's baptism. But since the Pharisees and experts in the law had not been baptized by him, they rejected the plan of God for themselves.
1: To what then should I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to each other. We played the flute for you, but you didn't dance. We sang a lament, but you didn't weep. weep. For John the Baptist did not come eating bread or drinking wine. And you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look, a glutton and a drunkard a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by all her children.
0: Then one of the Pharisees invited him to eat with him. He entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And a woman in the town, who was a sinner, found out that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house. She brought an alabaster jar of perfume, and stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to wash his feet with her tears. She wiped his feet with her hair, kissing them and anointing them with the perfume. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, this man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him. She's a sinner. Jesus replied to him,
1: Simon, I have something to say to you.
0: He said, Say it, teacher.
1: A creditor had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. Since they could not pay it back, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more?
0: Simon answered, I suppose the one he forgave more.
1: You have judged correctly.
0: He told him, turning to the woman, he said to Simon,
1: Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she, with her tears, has washed my feet and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she hasn't stopped kissing my feet since I came in. You didn't anoint my head with olive oil. But she has anointed my feet with perfume. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. That's why she loved much. But the one who is forgiven little loves little.
0: Then he said to her,
1: Your sins are forgiven.
0: Those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman,
1: Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Guess what want to pray for us? Okay. Father, we, uh, we thank you for forgiveness, Lord. And uh, we come and confess that we need your forgiveness day by day. The Lord bless Jonathan. We thank you for your word. And it's in your name. Amen.
2: Amen. Long text, but some great truth there as uh, Luke gives the account of Jesus' ministry and some of the interaction that's happened. But the big idea for us this morning is that repentant humility translates into hope in the way of Jesus. As we come honest about who we are and turning from sin and turning to God instead, that all translates to hope for us as we follow our Savior. Now, as a child of the 80s and a lover of science fiction, one of my favorite movies was Tron. Anybody remember Tron? So, and not even like the remake, like Buddhist version, but like the original Tron, right? It, for those of you who are younger, it's kind of like Wreck-It Ralph, but uh, live action. And there are computer programs that are caught up in a game and there's the evil mainframe that's trying to subdue and erase those program files that won't submit to his rule, right? But these programs have what seems to be a really interesting faith in their users. Those that wrote their code and it's a hope that carries them. Through and fuels their quests through the movies until they reach the upload and they free all the fractals. Right? I don't even know if I use that word correctly, but that's the image I have in mind. And so it's a great story, but it ties to the truth of human longing for more. Human longing for something beyond our experience, beyond ourselves. And humanity has this inborn longing for more. And we all sense it. If we're honest, if we spend enough time introspectively evaluating our longings, our hopes, our fears, our dreams. And it's this recognition that something, just a little bit, is off and there must be an answer to it. It Has to be an answer for our lives. And we find remedies for this longing in our souls in all sorts of places. We end up claiming new identities. We try to track it down in relationships, or we just live lives of rebellion as if that's going to finally be the answer. Or some of us just turn to chemicals or drinks to change our perspective and to fill that void. And if we're in that pursuit long enough, if we've lived just long enough to recognize these things, we hopefully come to the realization of what I call our creator gap. We just have this ache to be in proximity to the one who made us, to be in relationship with him. And once all those false fillers of this gap are rendered useless. Then we get to what we're actually made for. Love this quote from Malcolm Muggeridge. Uh, Old priest from England. He says it is precisely when every earthly hope has been explored and found wanting. When every possibility of help from earthly sources has been sought and is not forthcoming. When every recourse this world offers, moral as well as natural, has been drawn on and expended with no effect When in the shivering cold, every stick has been thrown on the fire and in the gathering darkness, every glimmer of light has finally flickered out. It is then that Christ's hand reaches out, sure and firm, that Christ's words bring their inexpressible comfort, that this light shines brightest, abolishing the darkness forever. So the point for us in our pursuit of life is to get to the point where we recognize none of the other stuff is actually going to help with our longing, with our ache for more, and we arrive at Christ. This longing is designed to lead us home, to lead us to Jesus. And in our text for today, that same longing is making an appearance here. If we have eyes to see it, you see Israel as a nation and as a people, had this experiential history with this longing for relationship with God. And they had been set apart by him from other nations to reveal who he was. They'd been entrusted with a way of life that glorified him. And they were familiar with the feeling of not living up to that way. But they continued on because ever before them to a remnant, there is this promise of one that would come and establish a kingdom forever, to finally bring peace, salvation, the end of all striving for his people. This has been their hope. that is the thing that fueled their quest in life. Prophet Malachi spoke it to the people. See, I'm going to send my messenger and he will clear the way before me. Then the Lord you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant you delight in, see he is coming, says the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. So the Gospel of Luke is just an account of his arrival and the unleashing of his kingdom. But the people who had exposure in history of relating were at this moment confused as to how it was supposed to happen. The Messiah had in fact come to correct that misunderstanding and to open the way for all who would believe in him. And like those experiencing or expecting rather a certain way of redemption, we too might not be sure about Jesus all of the time. But in the interaction with the question, if he is the one, I think we gain some insight and the hope that we need to keep going in this life. So there is one to believe in, to be discovered, to submit to. And we want to start where this starts, that Jesus is the one. John the baptizer in this moment, when we enter in the story, is actually in prison. If you remember, he had spoken some truth about Herod and his uh, misbehavior, and then he's put into prison. And at this moment, he is hearing all of the reports of Jesus' ministry and the things that are happening around him and what's going on with Jesus, the healings the resurrections that are happening, the growing excitement. If you remember, John is this mangy wilderness prophet who had been bold and brash, calling people to repentance and then standing up to the religious elite and the political class because of their sin. He would call them a brood of vipers or say that they were off and going to face wrath because of the life that they had chosen to live. He's the one who baptized his cousin, Jesus, saying that he was unworthy to do so, recognizing the Messiah had actually come. The one we had waited for for generations had finally arrived. But as he's listening to the reports of ministry, maybe it was somebody relaying Jesus's claim from the synagogue in Nazareth, where he read from Isaiah, and maybe that left John in doubt. Because he said that he came to proclaim liberty to the captives. And John at this moment is waiting in his cell with a mind towards political change. It's as if John wonders if Jesus is the one to baptize with the Holy Spirit or not. Is he the one that I said was coming? And is he the one that I prepared the way for that would redeem Israel finally from its oppressor? So he sends a couple of his disciples to ask the question. And they arrive and they present before Jesus, say, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? These things aren't happening as fast as they should. The way that we expected has not quite arrived yet, and you've been doing ministry now for a length of time. Why hasn't there been this change? And in the midst of the miraculous, this question comes to Jesus because he's at this very moment. He's healing. He's delivering people. He's restoring people. And as we've been watching his ministry unfold, there seems like there is kind of just this low hum that's going through the story as if there's supposed to be a shift in the people's mindsets. They just quite haven't fully got who Jesus is and what he's about, that this is what the kingdom actually looks like as he presents something different. He's even preaching it, right, in the Sermon on the Plain, saying this is the way of the kingdom. This is what we look like. Jesus leveled with his followers in that sermon about the upside-down kingdom, not one made of military means, but of love for enemy. Totally flips. What they expect to happen, Yet it's still hard to swallow for those that are waiting on what they usually expected. Now, I well, actually, so last week, I think the Zoffs were talking about needing to the shopping for a new bed. That's one of the most important things you're ever going to do. Find the right bed to sleep because you spend a ton of time on this thing. So don't go cheap on a bed, right? But in telling like that desire, we were asking the Bernals where they got their bed. And they relayed to the group, and this was public, so I can share it, that their box spring was tremendously squeaky, right? That anytime you got into bed or out of bed, there would be a squeak. And with Malachi in the room, that meant that if you got up at three a.m. to go to the restroom, or if you were like Gustavo and you get up at four to go to work, like you're going to wake everybody else up in the room. And they, I don't even know how long was it? Maybe a year. Three years of squeak and like just imagine the tension in your body, not trying to make the thing squeak as you got in or out. But the, the Holy Spirit finally spoke to you, right, Trish, and said, flip the box spring over like you have nothing else to lose. Like, just try. And guess what? There's no squeak anymore. Right. And so all they had to do to experience peace is to flip over their foundation God's people, in the very same way, and now you're only going to be thinking about that box spring, sorry. But God's people would find peace when they let Jesus flip their expectations of redemption, of who he was as king, of who he was going to bring to bear. So he answers the question. And he replied to them, go and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor are told the good news. And this is for John. And blessed is the one who isn't offended by me. It's as if Jesus is staying steady now, John. You are the messenger. I am the one. This will be the tension as we continue in the story, all the way through the resurrection, even after the resurrection, before the ascension, and maybe even today. Is Jesus the one? And he is. Like, I, with confidence, can tell you, and he keeps on proving it. And if we would be so bold as to not be offended by him, we will see it too. And by answering, Jesus then confirms John's ministry, and he shows the way of righteousness. This is just the idea that repentance is the way. So Jesus is the one we've waited for. He's the Messiah bringing, inaugurating a new kingdom for all of God's people, and the way for us in it is repentance. Jesus, in the story, says that John was more than a prophet. He was the prophet, But he tells us that the kingdom completes the work and actually brings something better than what came before. And at that moment, hearing that truth, the crowd, Luke writes, acknowledged God's way of righteousness. As they were followers now of Jesus. Those baptized into repentance by John had it confirmed that they were doing things right. That he was the one they were waiting for. This baptism did lead into his now arrival and turning from sin, recognizing their, their need for something different, for God to act to save them. This was their identity, their baptism, their entry into the kingdom. And Luke tells us that that was God's plan. That we would see our need and bring it to him. But there's other characters in this story, and they get quite the, the titles, don't they? The Pharisees and the experts in the law. I'm like, I don't, I don't have much of a title, and we, we sometimes, you know, my lead pastor. Yeah, who am I leading, right? We don't have a lot of extra pastors to say that we have to have one among the many. That was kind of funny, but nobody laughed. Right, or just a pastor, or like when your kids, oh, and... Some of you are great parents because you all do this around your kids. Have you noticed you do this when I say hi to the kid? You'll say, oh, hi. Say hi to Pastor Jonathan. And I'm like, I'm just Jono, man. You, could, you don't have to give me a title. But if we were to have an office with nameplates, like, we could get creative, like expert in grace. That's what, that's what I want my title. That would be, that'd be a good. One, right? But somebody else, we'd get somebody on staff that would be the expert in the law. So, these are the, the characters that are listening to this that repentance is the way, but they have a problem with God's plan for righteousness. And they didn't believe John, and now they don't believe Jesus. And by doing so, they are rejecting the plan of God for themselves. Luke's right. One writer says, but Pharisees and lawyers who prided themselves on their keeping of the law and were content to rest their hope of salvation on their merits, refrained from the humiliation of baptism. Of course, they would have never claimed to keep the law perfectly, but rather they would have claimed to keep it sufficiently. Jesus calls them then a generation of children that can find a complaint, a way around the kingdom at every turn. Says, I ask you to dance, you won't dance. I ask you to lament, you won't lament. And this is vital for us. The question of "Are you the one?" poses back to us: Who are we? The unworthy, the sinners, those in need of redemption, needing. Forgiveness. Know that that is actually who we are in this story, where we don't own our need for forgiveness or um, actually exercise a turning away from sin and instead turning to God. We actually reject the plan of God for ourselves. That's on us in that moment. John Owen, an old Puritan, said, he that hath or slight thoughts of sin never had great thoughts of God. Nobody likes to self-righteous. But we sometimes need Jesus to turn the mirror on us so that we can see ourselves. And he does just that here over dinner. Because Simon the Pharisee has invited Jesus to his house for a meal, but we see that he does not seem keen on giving any honor to Jesus. Just like the normal way of welcoming somebody into your home for a meal, there is no welcome. There is no washing of his feet. There is no anointing of his guest in this moment. So there is an atmosphere, you have to understand, at this meal of disrespect to begin with. And then a scandalous woman enters the scene. Right now, in that day, the homes of well to do people which we assume this Pharisee was, were built around essentially what is a center courtyard and in that courtyard, former formal meals were served like that 's where you would have the party because that 's where you had the space, and the guests would recline essentially on their left elbow on low lying couches that were next to a table, eating with their right hand. And then the person's feet would extend away from the table, essentially in keeping with the belief that the feet were unclean and offensive by nature. And certainly in this moment, because we know Jesus' feet have not been washed, are filthy, all because there's been no courtesy shown to him. So his feet are extra dirty, so he's doing it right. His feet are away from him, and as he reclines at the table for this meal, yet this woman... A sinner, likely, like all the commentators are convinced this woman was a prostitute. She found out that Jesus would be there, and she came. She came broken, humble, with tears flowing in this moment. Like, we wonder, had she heard the message of the kingdom and then owned it for herself? Has she been around when Jesus was preaching on the plane or did she hear it from somebody else? This truth that he was proclaiming of the kingdom that was actually for those that were poor, that were broken, that were sinners and tax collectors. That were far off from who the religious elite said God loved and cared for. We don't know, but we assume she had an experience of this grace just by her actions at this meal. And in an embarrassing or not, she would not be offended by Jesus and she would give him the honor he was due. In that moment, she gives all of herself to bless Jesus. This is not a woman of means. This is not a woman of reputation. And certainly she has a reputation, but it's not one that anyone would want. And yet she comes with this alabaster jar with all of her emotion, brokenness and life. And she pours it out on the one. And the host, Simon, he doesn't like it. Right? Reflecting on that this this morning, I'm so thankful for Jesus. I'm so thankful that the places in which He most pours out His grace in uh, the Gospels is uh, to women. Because the men are always the Pharisees, they're always the ones trying to keep the power and authority of their reputation, and the women come honestly and broken in our receiving of grace. And Simon a basic Pharisee at this moment. He says, if Jesus really was a prophet, he would know who this woman is and he wouldn't let her touch him. And Simon doesn't realize that this is exactly the kind of woman that Jesus came to say. Jesus answers Simon's thought with a mini parable of debtors who have their debts forgiven. There's a 500 sinner and a 50 sinner and which would love the creditor more? And Simon supposes the one with the bigger debt, and he's right, right? The one who is forgiven little loves little. And the truth is that this is not a standard for us to think through, but it's just a reality of our posture and perspective as humans. The greater we realize that we've been forgiven, the more we're going to love the one who has forgiven us. Biblical scholar Tom Schreiner says that those who are keenly aware of their many sins and receive the stunning and amazing forgiveness of Jesus are filled with joy. But those who think they are good in and of themselves see little or no need for forgiveness. They do not think grace is amazing because like Simon, they think their own lives are rather amazing this woman she knows her sin she probably even knows more than even the pharisees are presuming in this moment and that is what she brings to jesus she just comes as herself someone in need and the reality is that our response to jesus and our love for him are directly connected to a proper view of ourselves and others and when we understand that our brokenness Is real and we cast ourselves upon Jesus, the only one that can solve our brokenness. The result then for us is forgiveness of sin. It's love and peace. And if instead we lack compassion for others and love Jesus little, then just like Simon, we show that we do not ourselves understand Christ or his grace. And in this mini parable, what is fascinating to me is that both debtors were forgiven. They both needed forgiveness, and the one doesn't think they need it much, and they, and they miss it. Sometimes even the things we think we need to do better wreck us and act as a rejection of Jesus. This week I had a dream. It was a very strange dream, but my children confirmed that I should share it with you as a sermon illustration and I don't often have like vivid dreams that I remember, but this one, we were given a new church space. And it was beautiful, but it was dirty and it was uh, rodent infested. There was a, la- a large spider that actually became a Lego spider. So that's a whole thing that we need to figure out and submit to the Lord. Right. But in this large hall, there was a table with spiders and um, some other vermin that were about. And there there was this beautiful golden retriever, but it was annoying. And, you know, I'm just saying, in my dream, it was, you know, and it was definitely not ramen. And then somebody, it may have been Stacy, handed me, I think we even have some in the kitchen here, the spider killer, the poison, right? And so being a good pastor. I want to clean up this space where we're about to worship. And so I've got to prepare the space and I do so by spraying the vermin that are in the room. I spray the spider that becomes a Lego and another spider-like creature that actually was like a, a something. They were, they were scary, so I sprayed them. And then, I, I, I don't want to pin it on Stacy, but somebody said, well, spray the dog too.
0: Right?
2: <laughs> And then the, the nerve agent of the poison works. And this big, huge spider becomes a Lego. And then the two other critters I spray, one becomes like a guinea pig that's super cute. And then one's like a little hedgehog. But they are having, they're, they're dying. And it's traumatic. And I, I, I feel awful in this moment in the dream. I'm like, what did I do? Who did, I, what did I spray? And then Kenny Shows up in the dream, and he sees the dog, and how graphic, right? The, the intestines of the dog, and he actually says, oh, there's, that's the dog's kidneys out of its backside. This is the image in my head, and in that moment, I have no idea why Kenny was there. We need to submit that to the Lord, too, to figure out why he was the harbinger of death. But in in that moment, it's like 530 in the morning, I'm like, I don't have to keep, I don't have to stay in this dream, I can wake up. And and so I did, I I woke up. And then I couldn't stop thinking about that dream. And I actually, we're on the ride to school, taking the kids to school, and Ewan always reads scripture. And I said, will you please, and we were talking about the dream, I said, please read scripture so that we can just get this image out of my mind. And he's like, Exodus 31, and it's about how you take care of the entrails of the animals. (laughs) And Iona looks at me and says, I think God is speaking to you, Dad. (laughs) So what I thought in the dream was going to clean things up and make them better actually brought more death than I had hoped for. Because it didn't clean the situation, it just made it worse. And I carried the burden in that dream. I'm fine now. I mean, I may need to get a referral for some therapy, but we got that handled. But it's that realization that even trying to clean ourselves up without Jesus actually brings death. And this is what's going on here for Simon. Like I feel for him at this moment because I, I've lived like Simon. Maybe you have too. Trusting in your own reputation, your own status, your own obedience to this view, uh, skewed view of the law. And all of it's just rejection of God's plan. The truth is that in the kingdom, all of life is repentance. This is the way of righteousness where forgiveness is found to the one that is humble, to the one that is repentant, to the one not offended by Jesus. And then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. One writer says, because divine wisdom has been justified by all her children, men and women must abandon any delusions of self sufficiency or innate goodness. They must stop looking for a God small enough to allow them to pretend that their imperfect righteousness is okay. They must stop looking for a salvation that is small enough to be earned. Before Jesus, we are to be humbled with clear eyes, being honest. And the truth is, that can be uncomfortable, but it is for our good. Because humility's result is hope. Jesus said, yet wisdom is vindicated by all her children. So those who are truly wisdom's children prove God's plan. The tax collectors and sinners and all who accept the good news of John and Jesus show that they are wise by their response to this message that they are hearing by their repentance and discipleship. So, humility before Christ is wisdom then for us. Those that acknowledge God's plan, the tax collectors, sinners, those in need of rescue, those that surrender to Jesus. This is who the kingdom is for. And in repentant humility, forgiveness and peace are found. Sin is forgiven and forgotten. As Corey Tenboom used to say, that when God throws our sins into the deepest sea, he puts a sign out front that says, No fishing. If our sins are forgiven, we are at peace, for we know that God knows all that defiles us, but has removed it from us forever through the life, death, and resurrection of the one who has come. The crowd might be uneasy at this moment. They might murmur among themselves, well, who is this man that even forgives sin? Well, the truth is he's Yahweh. He is God. The king that was promised, it's establishing his reign forever. To those who come humble, repentant, and in faith, he says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Paul will write it this way in Romans 5. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We also have attained access through him by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. The hope we need for living in our day to carry us forward, to lift our heads, to bring us over the horizon, to unleash the kingdom in our midst is given to us by Jesus as we come to him humbly. So friends, where do you need hope today? Where do you need to hear Jesus speaking peace into your situation today? Find it in him. Receive His grace come before him, humbly repentant. What a grace it is to feel your need. It's not bad to know how bad we are, because it's a grace to stand still as we mourn our sins with maybe a dirge or sad lament, confessing them to God and repenting. But then it's matched with this dancing to the music of heaven's free grace. Repentant humility translates to hope in the way of Jesus. May we be a people that live with this posture of humility that we would highlight not our goodness or greatness, but the greatness of our King. So what do we do we do with these stories from Luke? I think first just acknowledge God's plan of righteousness. Come with repentant humility, be forgiven much, and then love Much Jesus meets the need. He forgives all of your debts, whether you think yourself a 50 sinner or a 500 sinner. And if you think you're only a 50 sinner, ask somebody close to you, and they will tell you you're probably like a 1,000. But because he forgives all of your debts, you can believe in him. You can follow him. It is good to surrender to him with all of who you are. And then live this all of your days. Every moment you have left in Christ, keep coming to this well of his grace. Live humble and hopeful in him and remind those around you of his amazing grace. He really is that good. The truth is, this might just be what sparks revival among us. When we come like this woman, broken and in need, humble before the king, when we break our jars. I want to end with a poem from our friend Matt Pilgrim called Break Your Jar. And he writes, everyone loves beautiful, brimming jars, but the king prefers broken vessels. Not only because he can then repair them himself, he can and he does but because he loves to look out upon the beautiful devastation of lives that have been poured out, that is, lives that have been made low, to their knees, yes, but lower even still, until they've been so profoundly humbled that the world is turned upside down, making the last first and the first last. Jesus takes profound joy in surveying the crime scene where the self was murdered, The clues and witnesses all pointing to that blood-sealed testimony that to die is gain. So it would be a holy pleasure indeed to see a few more broken jars, to endure a few cuts from shards of alabaster as they bathe in the most precious of substances. Substances with the modern names like time, talents, and treasure, and older names like heart, soul, mind, and strength. The sort of stuff that time and good sense and unbelief have taught us is too valuable, too precious to add to the coffers of the king. A few more broken jars and the gasps of horror and awe just might produce sufficient wind to turn coals to flame, to put bones on flesh and to shake a few more Jonas from their ships. So they can start learning how to swim and simultaneously how to stop swimming. You can imagine that alabaster will shatter decidedly upon the sea of glass, revealing those contents we believed were too sacred, too necessary, too irreplaceable to be poured out at the feet of the king. So sacred that they were left to sit for eternity on some white picketed mantle high above the fray. So let's break these jars of clay. Let's wash feet with those sacred materials we quaintly call our gifts and blessings, lest they become the very seal that chokes the necks of these old jars until they die all along thinking they were living. Jesus is the answer to that longing deep in our souls. He is the one that was to come. Friends, run to him in humility, turning from sin, giving yourself away, breaking your jar, and receiving peace. May it be so among us. Will you pray with me? Jesus, your forgiveness is so great. Lord, by your Spirit, help us to see it. Help us to see the weight of our sin that you fully carry. My sin, not in part, but the whole. That we would be people of love. That we would hear your sins are forgiven. That your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And Holy Spirit, in the same way, we ask that you would administer that peace of Christ To all of us, and especially those that have those places in our life where it seems as if there is no peace. We ask in those places of doubt, of confusion, of uncertainty, of the fear of what's next, that you would administer your peace. Pour the love of the Father in our hearts, that we would recognize the grace of Christ and live from that. And Spirit, stir in us a sacrificial way of life that we would pour out that which you've given us so that others would hear that you are the one. In Jesus' name, amen.